Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, and we are uh, joined once again by our special guest, Dr. Matthew Stanton. Uh, welcome back to the podcast, brother. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, it's good to get to talk with you again. Uh, for our purposes, we're recording this in one block, uh, but this will be released in uh, successive weeks uh, as these episodes come out. In our last conversation, we got to talk with you about the Benjamin Keach Project, which you are intimately involved in. So we want to encourage our listeners to go back and uh, listen to that episode and pick up volume one of the works of Benjamin Keach, published by Particular Baptist Heritage Books. Uh, but in this conversation, we'll be discussing a book that you authored uh, titled Liturgy and Identity, London Baptists and the Hymn Singing Controversy, or at least we're going to be discussing uh, the material that you cover in this book. We know that uh, for a lot of our audience, when they think of Benjamin Keach, their mind is probably led to either Tropologia, if they're thinking about uh, things that he's written, or the hymn singing controversy, if they're thinking about things happening in the 17th century. Uh, but before we get into all that, I'll give you an opportunity to begin our conversation today by asking you, uh, what led you to read research this particular subject? Uh, yeah, I always been fascinated with Christian uh, church music, music, the uh, songs of the church, and so that that's uh, what what you would call hymnology or the study of of hymns, hymnody. And um, given uh, my own persuasion as a as a Baptist myself, and um, wanting to to look at the songs of the Baptists, I went straight to the the epicenter, if you will, of Baptist hymnody, which is Benjamin Keach, first Baptist to write a hymn book, and he published several in his lifetime in the 1690s, and I wanted to, to read through them. Uh, obviously, we don't sing them anymore, so I wanted to do some analysis, so there's a couple chapters in there, chapter three on three and four on uh, analyzing Keech's hymns and going through some of his, his prose, his use of poetry. Uh, but all that was, was just in, in an effort to understand uh, the church music and the hymns of the church. If Watts is the father of English hymnody, Keech is the grandfather of English hymnody. And I wanted to get back to understand that, that heritage and the, the hymns that he was writing uh, really helped explain how the the Baptists uh, became established as denomination, um, and, and not just within Baptist circles, but even wider dissent and later uh, the 18th century evangelicalism. I think if if Puritanism was was born with a psalter in its hand, uh, evangelicalism was born with a hymn book, and so I wanted to trace how we got to that point. Uh, there are certainly hymns being written before. Keach and in different contexts, you know, Luther, Calvin, even. Um, but what what is different about about Keach's hymns, and why did that spark this fury of hymn books in the 17th century, uh, 18th century, um, that uh, continues to this day? And now, of course, there's modern choruses and all the all the worship wars continue. But to get back to the to the start of them, what were they fighting over? That's what I wanted to know. 
I apologize uh, if I spoke over you, Dr. Stanton. There's a little bit of delay on my side. Um, but what I was, uh, as we as we transition into our discussion, uh, I wanted to say if, if there was ever such a thing as a clickbaity title, him singing controversy, uh, that will definitely get people interested in reading a book, at least if you're of a uh, Reformed Baptist persuasion, uh, or maybe just a confessionally Reformed persuasion, broadly considered. So uh, needless to say, I certainly am fascinated by your work in this area. I'm sure most of our listeners will feel the same way as they listen to this episode. And uh, maybe you can set the stage for us regarding the hymn singing controversy by first uh, describing what a worship service would have looked like before the controversy, and then how the uh, the worship service and the discussions regarding music in, in this era uh, was being progressively played out as the controversy became uh, a more uh, pressing matter uh, here in this, in this era. Absolutely, yeah. And I appreciate your comment about uh, the, the reaction there. I uh, was just at, well, we launched this first volume at the G3 conference down in Georgia, and there was a number of, of conversations I had that I found most interesting uh, and, and most of them regarded the singing of hymns and um, some guys coming up to me and just saying, why are you looking at hymns? We should only be singing the Psalms. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. And I really had to step back because I'm in a context where, you know, we're singing all types of crazy things. Uh, but to look specifically at the Psalms to hymns and realize that, yeah, this is perhaps more so in the in the States as opposed to here in Canada. But this this tradition of, of the Psalms only and and that all goes right back to Keech. Um, so the, the average service, the traditional Baptist service, if you can call it that, in, in the 17th century, they were certainly still emerging as a denomination. In fact, one of my colleagues, uh, we were at Queens at the same time, Matthew Bingham, he, he argues that it'd be better to refer to, to this, this era and this time, certainly pre-1689, as um, Baptistic Congregationalists would be the name. They certainly weren't English Baptists. Um, at the end of the century, maybe you could get there, but not not in the era we're talking right now. These Baptists, um, which you know, him, we'll go back and forth on that, but but I think it's a fair point to assume that I, I can't say the traditional church at this point because they're still figuring things out. But uh, certainly by the 1690s, um, we we start to see a bit of a template, and the the Baptists. In general, if we were to really generalize here, which would get me in trouble with some folks, but if we were to generalize, uh, the Baptist churches didn't sing. The problem that they saw with singing, and I address this in the first chapter, is that it required a prescribed form of worship uh, akin to the Book of Common Prayer. And they'd obviously done away with that. That was the high church, their Anglican church. They were going to let them take that. They wanted nothing to do with um with these prescribed forms, which to sing would necessitate uh, prescriptions, uh, either a lyric, a book, um, a call and response. There, there would have to be some sort of prescribed uh, form of worship there, which they were firmly against. And so hanging, singing ultimately uh, disappeared. Um, so they were, they were songless churches. And, and this is something I'm, I'm still kind of fleshing out to paint this picture. Um, I'm doing a chapter right now for the uh, dissenting handbook uh, over at Cambridge, and I'm still trying to flesh this out because it, it seems like these groups of dissenters, this this movement, um, they were songless churches that 
began singing after Keach. So I'm making those that correlation there and how he was involved in that. Um, but painting the picture of of why they didn't sing. Obviously, these prescribed forms I mentioned, they, they didn't like that. But then when they did start singing, and I, I mentioned this in chapter one of Liturgy and Identity, they, they wanting to hold to the purity of worship would only sing inspired song, which they took to mean spontaneous song. Again, not being prescribed, but still being a work of the Holy Spirit in the congregation. The inspired song uh, gave rise to solo singing. And solo singing certainly didn't become commonplace um, simply because the the reliance on the spiritual gifts in a particular congregation. So it wasn't a widespread movement, uh, according to the, the church books that I, I read, um, but it was, it was there enough to impact congregations uh, such as Ann Trapnell's uh, she was at Hansard, Hansard Knowles' church, um, and they they would have solo singing where an individual could rise in the service and sing a spontaneous song uh, that they were uh, given or inspired to, to give to the congregation. Um, and those this rise of solo singing was the first real music and songs that came in to the churches. Um, because again, up to up to this point, we're not seeing uh, any singing at all. And even going back, one quick note: even going back to these prescribed forms, um, Joseph Smith at the turn of the century even even wrote against using the scriptures in the service. That that the Bible itself was too prescribed. That the the preacher had to have everything internalized, memorized, and so he would go up with a message. And, and give that to the congregation. So they didn't even allow for Bibles in the pulpit. They were, they were really trying to, quenching of the spirit was, was of the utmost importance to them. So they did whatever they could. Anyway, so by the time we get to these songs, the solo singing, um, Keach reacted very negative to, negatively to that because it um, didn't allow the congregation to express their unity in Christ through singing together. Um, because it elevated certain individuals in the church, those that could give the solo song. And it started to cause a, a disunity between the what, what he would call the unmusical brethren in the church, those that, that weren't um, prone to singing, uh, prone to have a voice, if you will. Um, and so they, they began to, to disassociate as well and pull back. So all these things led, led Keach to start to start thinking about the the way in which he could communicate his sermons best to the congregation. So uh, initially, his his sermons um, gave gave way to his hymnody. So if you take um, uh, you take his spiritual songs um, sixteen ninety, uh, and you take an earlier uh, collection of his sermons. You can see how for for each sermon there's a correlated hymn, so that Keach would take his sermon and create a hymn from it, so that his congregation could go away singing that hymn, almost as if to memorize it on the car ride home, minus the car. So he's teaching hymns, or he's using hymns as a way of communicating the sermon. So you'll have you know sermon on the Holy Spirit, hymn one, and just track down. And you can see how he's using these hymns. 
um, which doesn't, it's unique to Keech. That, that methodology didn't continue. For example, by the time you get to Watts, hymns then became more about topic, uh, theme, um, an idea, uh, almost to be more artsy and more creative, sure. Um, but originally these hymns weren't for that purpose at all. They were, they were merely to express theological truths uh, from a sermon into songs. They're very pragmatic, very um, kind of rigid, if you will, because he was just copying over. He wasn't trying to focus too much on the beauty of the song, which is why I argue that we don't, that's why we don't sing Keech anymore because the same reason you don't sing your pastor's sermon <laughs> Sunday afternoon, uh, because it, it's a hard skill to be able to do. Um, but, but back to the picture, one, one last thing, sorry. <laughs> um, the songless churches, Keach starts introducing him singing then in Horsley Down um, in the 1680s, and they start to sing every Sunday. Um, they start to incorporate it into their observance of the table. Uh, and Keach thought that was the, the, the pinnacle of a worship service uh, was after the sermon's conclusion and before you got to the table that moment. And so that's where he put the hymn and he kept it there for the rest of his life. Uh, they started to sing more hymns, uh, certainly never got to Luther's 10 hymns a Sunday, uh, but but we're still very much in the, the pinnacle moment of the service. We're going to sing together God's word as it um, has has come over us in the sermon and now as we partake in it at the table uh keach wanted them to sing that as well and that that movement grows so that by the um by the 80s these songless churches now in the 90s begin to sing and um i wish i had some way maybe i'll send them to you i wish i had a way to show these diagrams um but with the agnes library we uh, created this map of uh, early modern england and um i've charted out all the these churches um, and what I did was I did it over the, the eighties, the nineties, and then 1700, the first decade there. And the blue dots are the songless churches. And so when you look at the eighties, there's all these blue dots and one little orange hymn singing church, which is Keech's. And then in the nineties, you can see half of them. And then by the 1700s, uh, almost every single one of these dots, these congregations, these pastors at science 1689, are now orange and they're now singing uh, hymns. And so the necessity for hymns becomes huge. And uh, Keach starts writing hymn book after hymn book and, and others as well, so that these churches can start to sing because this idea um, now has theological implications that if it's right to sing, if the scriptures say we are to sing, then we need to provide a way to do that. And Keach was truly the, the catalyst for that innovation. Mm. Mm. Very helpful. Very helpful indeed. Um, brother, I want to encourage you to take as much time as you need to answer these questions. Uh, and uh, if you want to be short, you can do that. But if you want to be thorough uh, for these questions that we have prepared for you, by all means, do so if you desire to. Um, and you begin to talk about some of the subjects that we were going to ask you. I was going to ask what part of 17th century did this controversy take place? You kind of mentioned there the 1680s slash 1690s is like the heat of it, right? Yeah. I'll ask you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you can talk a little bit more about that if you'd like to, but for the majority of this part of the conversation, um, I'd like to ask you 
Who were some of the proponents that were involved in the heat of the controversy? And how did the heat of the controversy really spark? How did it begin? Okay, yeah. So so we're in the late 1680s. Um, the General Assembly, um, the Baptist General Assembly, uh, gathers each year. And this, this innovation of Keech starts to become an issue for other people. Uh, other ministers around the London area that are hearing of it. Um, and certainly like a, like a wave it's, it's starting to grow and move. And so there's a reaction just as there always is to any type of movement in the church. And, um, in this case, we're looking at a healthy reaction to these, uh, early Baptist pastors, um, trying to figure out the implication of what singing in their churches uh, would look like that, that kind of healthy reaction and wave uh, quickly uh, spirals out of control, if you will, as, as more voices join into the debate. And um, the assembly does uh, ask for uh, a halting of, of the writings on the, the controversy in, in 1693, um, because the, the argument started to be less about the scriptural authority and intent for singing and more kind of personal ad hominem attacks. Uh, and so it was rightly paused. And, and again, a great testament to Baptist associations and how things are meant to, to go forward. They're meant to be discussed and moved, but then when things get heated, um, you know, meant to cool off. Uh, and so the main proponents in favor of, of the hymn singing were, uh, Keach primarily. His main opponent is Isaac Marlowe, who is a uh, wealthy jeweler in uh, in South London that goes to Keach's church. He originally uh, was a part of a General Baptist church. And, and if you remember earlier, I was saying the General Baptists were songless and would continue to be songless until the 1750s, uh, 40s, 50s. So they are much more of the non-singer. So Marlowe being an opponent to Keech's singing actually makes sense because his own theological convictions are that singing is a matter of the heart. It's a, it's a heart melody, not a, not a vocal melody. Um, and so he's very much against uh, Keech. He goes to a leading Baptist at the time to ask for some support. He's saying, Hey, this, this minister, my, my new minister now um, in 1690, is is making us sing these songs we need to put a stop to it and so he goes to a leading baptist minister at that time Hansard Knowles asking for support to write to write to Keach knowing again of this close connection of Keach with his friends his network um but, but Knowles uh um responds quite to the contrary and uh, kind of gives Marlowe a little a little kick to say uh no you're actually wrong you're going about this the wrong way, but then you're actually just theologically incorrect as well. That singing is not uh, a melody of the heart. It begins there, but then it must result in a vocalization. Uh, so he writes back to Marlowe to say that he, you know, he supports Keach, that we should be singing. And, and if, if you can remember, uh, Knowles had solo singing in his congregation too in London. So that, that also kind of makes sense. We're starting to see these camps divide. You, you have Kiffin um, entering in to this Keech, Knowles, and Marlowe, 
and the more general Baptist leaning um, folk. And, and Kiffin comes in almost as like the, the fatherly voice. I mean, he, he's up into his uh, what is he, late 80s at this point. And so he, he enters in as like a, a fatherly voice to say, um, let's cut it out on, on either side. And so he's a main, a main proponent in the let's pause the debate entirely, which Marlowe would pick right back up two years later and, and not, not care for that altogether. Um, but Kiffin then enters as a, as a prominent voice as well. We have, we have 17 uh, pamphlets or tracks that were written uh, within this hymn controversy, one responding to another and back and forth. Um, sorry, I should say 17 voices into the debate. Marlowe himself will write over a dozen uh, from his own uh, perception of the debate. Uh, and in fact, he would write in 1714, so this is 10 years after Keech even died, Marlowe would write to say that he had won the debate and that nobody was singing, which was ridiculous because everybody was singing by 1714 in the circles, but he ends up leaving the church. So that, that's why he says that, but claims he, he had won the debate 10 years after uh, Keech had passed. Um, but out of all these, um, out of all these other figures, kind of primary opponents would be uh, Robert Steed in North London. Um, there's a kind of anonymously published track by um, SWSJWC. Those are just the initials we have for them. But um, they write um, with with Marlowe against the singing of hymns. Um, a couple other minor voices step into the debate to try and um, support their side. And, and, and as I said, it, it was primarily a debate over theology, not preference. I think what, when we think of worship wars today, we're fighting over preference, like the type of song to sing, the type of instrumentation, the color of the carpet. You know, we're fighting over all these little details, whereas th this controversy is over a theological disputes. Um, every side is using the same scriptures, but just interpreting the, interpreting them differently. Some using the normative, some using the regulative principle. And because they're providing, because they're using that framework, they're providing different answers to, to these to disputed topics. Um, so I am always careful to say this isn't uh, a preferential Marlowe didn't like singing. No, no, it, it's Marlowe didn't believe that singing was uh, spirit-filled worship. So it, it was a more serious conversation and, and why you can see the tensions rise and the unity start to, to break because these main proponents are fighting about areas of theological conviction. Yeah, it definitely makes things very interesting and, and often very heated when the same scripture passages are being cited to support different convictions and different perspectives. So I can only imagine how difficult that must have been for all parties involved. And we've mentioned Benjamin Keach several times today, uh, not only in this discussion, but as Austin mentioned, uh, we recorded a previous episode today about the Benjamin Keach project. And I think given your extensive knowledge and interest in Keach's life and ministry, uh, it's only appropriate for us to now ask you about Keech's role as a hymnist, especially in light of a hymn-singing controversy that he was involved with. Um, would you be willing, Dr. Stanton, to tell us how Keech went about introducing hymns to his congregation and why he felt it was necessary to do so? Uh, maybe even a little bit about what 
uh, we can learn from the types of hymns that he introduced here in the 17th century. Mm. Uh, yeah, so uh, a couple things. The the first would be that I, a huge Keech fan, but he was not a good hymn writer. That's that's clear. Um, he's providing a methodology for the hymn writers that, that come after him. So I'd be the first to admit that. Um, having read through and even as a musician trying to, to re, you know, rebirth his hymns with new, with new uh, melodies to them. Um, they are, they are very hard to sing because this is a pastor. This is a theologian. This isn't a musician. And so right off the bat, it's, we're, we're approaching these hymns with a different lens. So it's not the, how great of a, of a, of a writer and of a poet was he um, because he was a, you know, four out of 10 where he shines at a, as a 10 out of 10 though, is his, um, is his communicating theology in a succinct form. He's taking his two hour sermon and he's putting it into six stanzas. Uh, and, and that, that's an incredible gift and skill, which he hones over the course of his, uh, 30 plus year ministry at the, what we now have as the Metropolitan, uh, Tabernacle Spurgeon. He's honing all those gifts over the course of that time and providing a framework for those that would come after like, um, uh, like Watts, um, so that they can, they can start writing hymns that, um, that can meaningfully impact the church rather than just sound pretty being sung by a choir. Because again, this is the dissenters have moved away from the choirs. They don't want things being sung to the congregation. They want the congregation to be the choir. Uh, and Keach provides um, the ability for them with the hymn book for the, the congregation to be the choir. Um, he even said famously in his breach repaired 1691, he says, um, that hymn singing is the nearest resemblance of heaven that we have here on earth. Um, and, and other Puritans said that that was the table. Keech goes to hymn singing. But, but either way, he, he's saying that this is the only uh, ordinance of the church because he calls hymn singing an ordinance, um, which is fascinating. But um, the only ordinance of the church to continue into the next uh, era, into eternity, because we're not going to be baptizing people in heaven. Um, but we will be singing. And so he takes that priority for songs and really helps the Baptists to realize that they're missing that, that they've kind of cut that off of, of their practices as they establish themselves against the wider backdrop of 17th century um, descent. Um, probably also important uh, just to mention that Keats writing these hymns, um, though they're not, like I said, uh, well-written, he uses a, a cool uh, couple of tools. First, he takes the Psalms, um, the Davidic Psalms, and he uh, rewrites them. So he'll have uh, hymns on Psalm, um, say 20, for example, he'll take Psalm 20, and he'll rewrite it as a hymn. And this is something that uh, Ainsworth had done before, who was a, um, an Anglican hymnist in, in the, the mid 17th century. Um, Keach does it in a bit different way, but, but he's still doing, doing something fascinating where he's taking Psalms and rewriting them, retuning them so that they are uh, now singable hymns. And then he does so with 
the New Testament as well, where he takes some of the early hymns of the church, um, some of the singable texts like in Philippians, where he'll grab those verses and then turn them into a hymn, kind of akin to what he does with his sermons. Um, so he Keats really establishes the the ability of the the music leader, which at that time was the pastor. There wasn't a there wasn't a separate role for that. It was the same one one guy. So he gives the pastor the the ability, or rather that framework, that methodology, to be able to take a scripture, whether it's a psalm or a New Testament hymn, and recreate it for that congregation. And Keach goes so far as to say, and this, this is highly debated, but he even goes so far as to say that only songs written by that pastor of that church should be sung in that church. So, you know, we sing Luther's Mighty Fortress. You know, we shouldn't be doing that. Luther wrote that for his congregation. What do we think we're doing? So Keach may go a little bit extreme there, uh, but he's just, he's trying to make the point that these hymns have to land home in the context that they're written, just like the sermon should land home for the congregation to the people um, that, that the Lord is, is speaking to through that, through that minister. Um, but, but, but ultimately Keach, Keach would end up writing uh, a number of hymn books. Um, trying to think off the top of my head, uh, near a thousand hymns. It's probably over a thousand hymns. I have to check um, that they sing in the church there, hoarsely down that, that they'll sing there um, through his ministry and through his two next successors through Stinton, Stinton. Um, but then also hymn books that would be passed around. And, and the really cool thing about Keach is that he produces hymn books for other churches so that not only do his people have a book to sing with after service, but the hymn books are passed around throughout London uh, so that all these orange dots that are now singing have a repertoire that they can go to a kind of Baptist approved songbook, which were Keech's, it was written by Keech entirely. Um, uh, and so the, these other congregation are taking Keech's hymns and they're now singing them. So he has hymns for the table. He has hymns of baptism. He starts to categorize these hymns, which inevitably is what um, the, hymn writers to come would end up doing, writing hymns more on theme rather than text. Um, that's certainly where Keach started, but then he soon realized that if he was going to make these uh, hymns available to the wider public, he had to generalize them so that they could be uh, sung in every church. And, and that really is, I think, the biggest part of his lasting impact, because uh, we're, we're still doing that today. Um, and even in the hymns that we do sing, we're picking them because of the the central truth that they convey. We're not trying to um, put, uh, to, you know, take a sermon and put it to the text. Like Keach did that. He tried that. Those didn't last. The ones that last, the things that have that impact are, are when you condense that that theological uh, doctrine or or even an issue, something that we're trying to understand, and you can turn that into a six or a 10 stanza hymn, that's where the lasting impact is because people walk away singing and 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 knowing that that truth and it sticks with them. And I think Keach laid that framework uh, really well, as we can see later, um, hymn writers. And even Watts, one last thing, sorry, even Watts borrows from Keach and takes some of Keach's hymns 
and copies them for his own. Uh, and in chapter four there, I have columns where you can see a Keech hymn, a Watts hymn, and it's the same, like, they're borrowing directly from Keech because he has provided such a helpful way to understand hymns that are different than the way hymns had been understood previously in England. Mm. I really like what you said at the beginning of this episode, that if Isaac Watts is the uh, father of hymnody, then Benjamin Keech is the grandfather. I think that's a memorable quote from you that our listeners should make sure that they uh, picked up on because of Benjamin Keech's importance. And one of his hymnals was named A Feast Full of Fat Things, right? Something like that. I think yep. I uh, I think I read that on your website a number of years ago whenever I was looking through some of his publications. So thankful for that resource that you've provided for us as well. I want to transition back now to uh, the last part of our conversation where we were talking about how uh, part of what caused the controversy was that they were using the exact same texts and they understood the sense or the meaning of the same texts from scripture to explain what they meant by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So can you just explain to us uh, how different Baptists in the 17th century understood psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and not only were they taking the same scripture and landing in different places, but they were even taking these proponents in the 1690s Simpson controversy. They were even taking the same uh, forebearers going back to Augustine, uh, certainly Luther and Calvin. Dr. Owen is quoted by all of them extensively. They're even taking the same figures and landing in different places, saying that, oh, uh, the Honorable Dr. Owen would have been on our side, John Owen. Uh, would have sung hymns, and then Marlowe say, "Oh no, Owen would never have sung hymns." So not only scripture, but even people—they are <laughs> interpreting differently to argue for their position. So they're all over the place. But in terms of the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the the understanding became that the Psalms were Davidic; they were the um, canonized scriptures, the Psalms. So they they couldn't be changed. Um, because they existed uh, in the inspired word of God. Uh, hymns were those that um, the debate, so, so everybody agreed on those. Uh, the General Baptist, the particular Baptist, I'll explain it through those two lenses. Um, they both agreed on the Psalms. They were uh, inspired in the word of God. Hymns, they, they differed in the sense that um, a hymn in the General Baptist camp was a New Testament song written for the early church. And, and in the particular Baptist camp, we get the idea that the, the hymn is a uh, modern composure, uh, a, a human recently made composure. So it's, it's a song, not a psalm. So they're splitting on hymns. And then spiritual songs, those were the uh, spontaneous, the, the solo song that um, an individual would give. Um, the interesting thing that... Uh, I, I track this in chapter one of the book is that the so the rise of solo song in this spiritual songs as this third category, uh, a means of personal expression and devotion is how they defined it. Um, for Keach, he recategorized as a hymn. So Keach, uh, he did a lot of notable things in his life. Perhaps the most 
influential, particularly regarding the hymn scene controversy, is Keach redefines what a hymn is. Because up to this point, a hymn is either uh, a New Testament song for the early church, or it's um, or it's a song which was composed um, perhaps by a, a Puritan brother that the congregation could sing together. But when Keach redefines hymns, he says that the spiritual songs, these kind of instantaneously given spirit-led um, uh, songs of worship, were actually um, given to the congregation to be sung by the congregation, meaning that they were properly understood to be hymns. So when Keach starts writing hymns, he's not writing what you would expect. He's writing spiritual songs, but renaming them as hymns so that the whole congregation could sing because a spiritual song was only to be sung by an individual in the congregation. But he wanted these songs to be sung by the whole. So he redefines what the hymn is by essentially taking this third category and, and making it a normative um, part or normative practice of his worship setting. And because he does that, because he redefines what the hymn is, he is now allowed to write hymns because they're spiritual songs. And obviously a spiritual song is something that is given to an individual. But now that he's redefined him as the basis for a spiritual song, he can write those as an authentic and genuine form of worship, but now give them to the congregation as hymns have been um, since the time of Christ. And, and that, that redefining changes, uh, well, it, it sparks the debate because now these general Baptists are saying, no, you can't write a hymn. That's, you can do a spiritual song. Sure. That's your own personal devotion, but you can't write a hymn. And then Keach flips up on its head to say, actually, that is what a hymn is. When, um, you know, Paul and Silas are singing in prison, when Christ and the disciples are singing at the table, they're singing, uh, a hymn, which, which, you know, we can write today with that spirit, um, movement inside us, that spiritual song. Now we can write a hymn ourselves. And that's the real catalyst for the hymn singing controversy. What, what they're going to have to fight about is what is the definition of the hymn. And then by 95, by 1695, they land on Keech's definition, which then allows hymns to explode. And, and the two hymn books we have from 1690 to 1695 becomes 10 hymn books from 1695 to 1700, because now other people start writing and even going further afield, like Joseph Stennett, for example, start they start writing hymns on the Sabbath um, and on the table as well, because they're expressing these ideas that they, I won't say have been given permission by Keach to discuss, but have certainly been given an argument for the theological basis for why they can be writing these things. Well, Dr. Stan, you mentioned previously uh worship wars and for those of us who um, have been in more evangelical contexts we, we may certainly have some experiences of, of the silliness that worship wars can entail uh, in our contemporary setting but it, it does sound like there there's also some serious squabbles even amongst uh, particular baptist christians and, and pastors and theologians in the 17th century so um what what can we learn today what what can pastors today, uh, whether it be particular Baptist, Reformed Baptist pastors, or Calvinistic evangelical uh, pastors, or even just broadly evangelical pastors, 
uh, or, or church leaders who may be listening to this episode in God's providence, what does the 17th century hymn singing controversy have to teach um, church leaders and pastors uh, today about worship and, and about music preferences and, and different styles that you may find in a local church's expression of corporate worship? If, if theology is, um, you know, biblical doctrine expressed through a personality, like that's typically the definition for preaching, if you go back to Martin Lloyd-Jones, then, then the, the, the songs of the church, um, our, they are our uh, means of expression and devotion uh, to God, which looks, looks differently. Um, it, uh, it isn't a, a one-size-fits-all. Um, the Baptists thought it could be, and, and that's why they, they tried to get to a place where they could normalize something, which uh, thankfully Keach helped them to, to settle that debate. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing we, we can take away is that the, the understanding of theology through song, um, by definition, has um, more voices coming into it than than just my way or the highway. I think just the nature of singing in that it's the whole congregation singing in unity together. And sure, there's, there can be harmony and other exciting parts, but the, the singing in unity um, presents, um, uh, pr presents our unity in Christ in a tangible way that is expressed through personal devotion. And so just as that, that has multiple voices being put forward, um, so too in, in our discussions of theology, um, we are centered in Christ, but we are, we are, we are orbiting with, with the word of God, um, to understand, you know, the, the mystery of the gospel, uh, will be revealed in Christ, uh, ultimately. Um, and, and so we're, we're here trying to figure it out day by day and the, the nature or, or the tone in which we try to figure that out is, is almost as important as the, the, the discussion itself. Um, cause the, the Baptists, the one thing that they really missed are, are they, they failed at perhaps was discussing, these convictional truths with um, with a generosity towards one another. Uh, the reason the tensions got so high wasn't because it was a an important thing. Of course, it was. Tensions always get high when we're discussing an important thing, whether that's with your spouse or with your children. It wasn't because the tensions were high. Um, it was because they, they lost the sense of that, that genuine unity and, and that grace that they could show one another. And when we lose that, and we lose that all the time, I can think of a great example in COVID. But when we lose that sense of, of genuine um, kind of grace towards one another, things can spiral very quickly into camps where we believe this, you believe that. And then it becomes less about the gospel and Christ and more about ideological preferences and understandings. And the Baptists had to learn the hard way. This was a 10 year long debate. They had to learn the hard way that um, discussing the issue has to remain central, no matter how you approach it. 
it, it, it has to remain central because if it doesn't, if you start to attack each other, like Keach, like Marlowe did, uh, then you lose the whole, the whole point. And then it, it no longer becomes about unity. Uh, it, it becomes about who can win and who can, who can fight better and make the, the better arguments, um, which again, Marlowe thought he did 1714. He's saying, I, I still want it. I got it. Almost as if he missed the whole point of the last 10 years, which was, they were trying, which should have been that they were trying to work together to establish a normative principle in their, in their worship. Um, but he, he didn't get there. And I think for us today, we certainly have to remember that there will be disagreements, but the tone in which we approach those disagreements becomes so critical, so key in, in dealing with them. And if we lose sight of that, uh, things will spiral uh, very quickly. And the, the worship wars we have today um, certainly can be over meaningful things, um, but, but the... A church will either unite or divide over how we approach those topics. So, so good biblical leadership is is critical. You know, having having elders, having a, a pastoral team um, that can approach the, those things as brothers around a table. They'll they'll allow a congregation to 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 get through together in unity, as opposed to my camp, your your camp, church splits now. Once. Uh, singing psalms with an organ and one, or probably acapella actually, psalms acapella and the other has a electric guitar and drums, right? But it, but it that actually has nothing to do with the worship of Christ. It was just the 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 fight over which um, which preference would be better for for our our situation, and that that division. Uh, certainly still happens today, but that that's all I would say. Just the, the tone in which we approach those disagreements is is oftentimes more important than the disagreement itself in terms of resolving the issue. Amen. Well said. Well, brother, we have enjoyed our conversation with you thoroughly, and we do encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of your book, and we'll make sure to link to it in the show notes if I can get it in focus there. If you're watching on video, you can see the cover of it. But uh, I'll let you have the last word, brother. Do you have any final thoughts about the hymn singing controversy? Uh, anything you've written in your book, Benjamin Keach, or anything else we've been discussing in this conversation? Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate appreciate you guys and and the podcast, the work it's doing. I, I know it's very beneficial to to pastors and and scholars, people trying to dig deep into God's word. So thank you for the work you're doing as well. And um, uh, in terms of the book, uh, just very thankful for Larry Kreitzer and his work there um, at Regents Park to be able to to uh, get it get it out. It it essentially was the the basis for my dissertation now in uh, book form. So I'm thankful to, to, to them at Oxford for, for putting that out. Um, and, and in terms of Keach, uh, my, my final thought on Keach, which I hope, which I hope is an encouragement, um, is that uh, Baptist Keach, I've always been involved in discussion and dialogue. So I pray that we could do that and afford the same graces as, as they did. And, um, you know, don't be afraid to to stand up. Keach was certainly again that, that controversialist. He he wrote a lot and debated a lot. And um, let's let's hold true to the word of God, and um, let's discuss with with grace and with truth and in love. And the the Christian life all of a sudden becomes very exciting. It's not black and white where you're um, 
uh, you know, not having an enjoyable time. It's, it's certainly fun to go back and forth and, and to discuss. And that's, that's always been a part of our, uh, part of my uh, Baptist heritage and faith. Uh, and uh, I'm thankful for that. Thankful for Keach. And if, if your listeners uh, have any sense of that for themselves, like they're discovering uh, new theological truths and they want to, to grow in their understanding, uh, dive into an, an English Baptist like a keech and you'll start to see that passion and that'll, that'll certainly fuel you, not just in your understanding. Sure. That's wonderful. Um, but in your love for God, you know, you take a love for God over, over a PhD any day of the week. And so I pray that that would be true for your listeners as well. What a fitting way to conclude that episode, uh, Dr. Stanton. Uh, we do hope that all of these podcasts and all of our studies and all of our services for the uh, building up of Christ's church, for the advancement of God's glory, and for cultivating a deeper love for God in our hearts as uh, the people of God. So thank you so much again for coming on today's show and for all that God is doing in and through your life and ministry, brother. Thank you. To our listeners, we want to thank you again for your continued support of the Covenant Podcast. And until next time, we wish you grace and peace. God bless.